This is Mythos, and I am the creator, Nicole Schmidt. This podcast is a storytelling journey through world folklore. Here, you will experience fresh interpretations of traditional narratives, mainly with a darker edge. The aim of Mythos is to ignite a passion for the lore of generations past by telling the stories with a sense of magic, as if they were entirely real. With brief context and analysis in the introductions, the main focus is the retelling of the stories themselves. Welcome to Folklorica Slavica, the series in which we will explore the folkloric landscape of the Slavic world. Here we will encounter the witches, demons and spirits that haunt the forests, lakes, mountains, urban spaces and even bathhouses of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and more. Hello everyone, Nicole Schmidt here. First, I would like to thank Eva Pivovarska, Aaron Bloxage, Murad Margum, Caitlin Abdel-Velasquez, Lois Cordelia, Robert Slade, Catherine Heck, Janine, Carl Sack, Judah Mayo, Heather Anderson, Ruth Roberts, and Stephen Alexander for becoming monthly patrons. The narrative approach of Mythos takes hours of careful research and script writing, so I've taken the plunge to reduce my hours at work to dedicate more time. To supplement my income, to increase the amount of time I could spend on the podcast, and ultimately to make the project sustainable for the long term, I've started a Patreon campaign, which is an online platform on which artists can receive monthly financial support from patrons. And if you can be a monthly patron, even for as little as $2 a month, please do so. Rewards for $5 and $10 a month patrons include special access to information episodes discussing the research behind the stories and even ebooks of my show scripts. Simply go to Patreon, type Mythos Podcast into the search engine and pledge what you can. The link will also be on my webpage at www.mythospodcast.com. In fact, if you could be one of the, let's say, 500 listeners who pledges support in the top two tiers of $5 or $10 a month, I could do this full-time, putting out bi-weekly episodes, special patrons-only content, and could even start planning live shows. We've got a very big and fascinating world to travel together in this podcast, and I want to explore folkloric realms with you for years to come. In fact, the first 20 of my mythic travelers who makes a monthly pledge even for as little as $2 a month, we'll get a thank you postcard in the mail. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. In Slavic folklore, that is, the folklore of European countries that speak Slavic languages, such as Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Russia, Slovenia, In this folklore, beings of the so-called unclean force dwell in forest and field, home and bathhouse. In previous episodes, we have met the sometimes deadly, sometimes helpful spirits that inhabit domestic and geographical units. The domovoi who dwells in the home, the polovoi and paludnika who reign in the harvest field, the leshi who is master of forest, and the bannock whose domain is the bathhouse. 
While these spirits are territorial masters of their own domains, they're also communal, with the bathhouse being a center point for social interactions between these beings of the unclean force. We have yet to meet, however, a particularly special manifestation of the unclean force, those water-bound spirits who are also said to be spirits of the unquiet dead, human spirits who perhaps committed suicide or died an untimely or tragic death. Perhaps because of the terrible nature of their deaths, they have been transformed, their spirits manifesting into sometimes terrifying, sometimes beautiful forms. But despite their appearances, the beings in this episode are nearly always deadly. So, from the glacier-covered Russian island of Novaya Zemlya, to the coniferous forests and fecund lake basins of Poland, from the great heights of the Ukrainian Carpathians to the dark waters of the Slovakian Danube, you will hear tales of water-bound beings who are dangerous to mere frail humans. While in Russia and Poland, we will encounter the Rusalka, the water-bound spirit of a woman who has ended her own life. While in the Ukraine, we will encounter the Rusalka's sister lore, the Mavka, the spirit of a woman who has died a tragic and or untimely death. Lastly, while touring the Slovakian Danube, we will meet the Vodnik, the male counterpart of the Rusalka. Welcome to Unquiet Dead and Unquiet Waters. Story 1. The Russian Rusalka. Location, the Novaya Zemlya Archipelago, Arctic Ocean. On the bleak Arctic island of Novaya Zemlya, in a squat brooding hut, Ivan the seal hunter leaned back in his chair and felt the great silence, felt the stoicism of the tundra and the dark lowering clouds and iced over waterfalls felt the phlegmatic calm of arctic winds scraping the ice and gouging sharp rocky crests. As he picked up his balalaika and laid his fingers upon the strings of his beloved instrument, with the intention of passing the evening in song, he realized that it wasn't the absence of sound that constituted this silence, for the world outside his hut was alive with erratic wind song. No, the silence he felt in his heart was simply the absence of the shrill, petty voices in his own mind. There is something utterly absolute in the nothingness of tundra that gripped the minutia of consciousness with a crushing stone fist. Ivan felt conquered and strangely content. His mind placid and his body satiated with braised seal, smoked fish, wild onion and venison, he allowed the tundra's shrill self-assurance to flow through his fingers and into the strings of the balalaika, and somehow the crushing peace of that hyperborean wasteland found expression. His fingers stroked and plucked, sometimes heavy, brooding, and rock-like, and sometimes with the solid agility of the wind. He had never played such songs, as ethereal as a snowy plain, 
but as heavy as a glacier. And even when his oil lamp ran out, he felt compelled to play. And as he did, he heard a strange sound coming from somewhere inside the cabin. Something moist and squelching like wet skin flapping the floorboards. In the utter blackness, the sound took on a rhythmic pattern, and the sense of presence that overcame Yvonne terrified him, made all the trappings of his trade that littered the hut, the snowshoes, the crampons, the trapper's hat, made all of this take on sinister forms in the dark. Yvonne could now discern that these sounds were made by feet, but feet with the rubbery consistency of seaweed. And when the terror compressed his body, when the great pressure of it threatened to stop his heart, he leapt up from his chair and relit the oil lamp with trembling fingers. But there was nothing, nothing at all. The next day on his dog sled, Yvonne raced the wind- setting winter sun, glimpsing its anemic light between the mountains. He called encouragement to his dogs and looked back at the slick seals on his sledge with satisfaction. There was a sinister purity in that pale light, which vaguely illuminated the rutted, leprous, coal-black rock of the mountains, budding out of the silent white snow. He was used to these short days, but he felt there was something unnatural in the speed of that lowering sun and the gloom of night that it heralded. In the gloom of a mountain crevice, he saw, or he thought he saw, the shifting of a gigantic form, and as he glided by, he thought he could make out legs, arms, breasts. He remembered tales of cruel, hideous, large-breasted Amazon-like women that prowled these northern climbs, a Rusalka, deadly and stern. With a shrill fear, he called to his dogs to hurry. Surely it was his imagination forming rocks and crevices into threatening forms. Nonetheless, he hurried on. And when he arrived at his hut, he had to feel for the seal's oil and the lamp to light it, for the night had come with a bizarre rapidity. And just like the night before, Yvonne the seal hunter felt the great silence, felt the stoicism of the tundra and the dark lowering clouds and iced over waterfalls. And like the night before, he played his balalaika, the hyperborean piece of that arctic wasteland finding expression in the strings of his instrument. And again, the blackest blackness of night after the oil lamp petered out, the slapping squelch of saturated skin on the floorboards. He continued to play, like last time, but the terrifying image of a pirouetting, human-shaped slog of seaweed in his mind's eye, made even more terrifying by the blackness, by the fact that he could actually see nothing. And again, when the terror compressed his body, he leapt up from his chair and relit the oil lamp with trembling fingers. There was nothing again. This night played out exactly as the one before, except this time... Yvonne had a plan. The next night, all played out as before, but this time Yvonne hid his oil lamp behind a thick curtain, hiding the light. And immediately upon hearing the dancing, Yvonne threw back the curtain, 
and saw in the meager oil lamp light a young girl. Now, Yvonne stood in disbelief, staring at this young, beautiful girl, barely registering her trembling words, which were soaked in a lowly desperation. Yes, she said, she was a Rusalka. But Yvonne shook his head, saying that she was much too beautiful to be a Rusalka of the Great North, that those Rusalka were all hideousness, frozen rot and great heaving breasts, hags even. And as she explained that she was different, that she had a human father, that she could remain out of the water as long as she liked, as long as she was in the presence of only one person. As she explained these things, Yvonne became enamored with her beauty, which had all the otherworldly stoicism of the tundra and the dark lowering clouds and iced over waterfalls. As foolish as it was, Yvonne felt fell desperately in love with her, and every evening during this hunting sojourn of his, he watched her fluid movements as she danced to the music of his balalaika. When he played, he sensed that the great melancholic regret she carried about her dispersed, and even though Yvonne wondered how she had joined the ranks of the unquiet dead, wondered if she had drowned herself in the slicing cold of those arctic waters. Even though such dark thoughts crossed its mind, he still loved her. Now, their separation was bitter to him, and as he sailed back home to Arkhangelsk to sail his wares, he thought of her instructions to find her again. And when spring came and went, Yvonne found himself often compressed with longing, the great pressure of his desire for the Ruselka, crushing his mind and senses so that he could not enjoy hearth and home. So he returned to the bleak Arctic island. He traveled across the stoic tundra. He trudged, felt the mind-crushing silence of dark lowering clouds and iced over waterfalls, felt the phlegmatic calm of arctic winds scraping the ice and gouging sharpie rock crests. He journeyed until he arrived at a river with a wickedly sluggish current, a river that exhaled melancholy and a bottled-up brooding grief. As he stood on the thick, spongy carpet of moss, he hesitated for only a moment, and remembering her great beauty, her kind voice, and her dancing, he dove straight in allowing himself to float to the bottom, and the sense of immensity of having passed into another realm altogether made the seal hunter wonder to what country he had come. Immediately, the Rusalka rushed out from the right of riverbed weeds that flowed and swayed, weeds that were obviously her dancing tutor during those eons of isolation she had spent in this domain of water and spirit, for the weeds flowing in the water reminded him of her movements to his music during those long winter nights he remembered so fondly. Embracing her, he felt joy like no other. Yet something, something about that place wrapped one in a womb of melancholy, muzzled the mind and senses. And yet her nearness and her earnest words of love overcame these impressions. And if time could be noted in such a realm, it would be said that the seal hunter spent year upon year beneath the river waters, 
With each year, his mind grew increasingly more vague, amphibious, and yet with this came clear memories of his human home and family. Fires in the hearth and dances and great feasts and men and women in beautifully embroidered clothing. Flashes of kisses from his mother and the tinkling laughter of his sister. These all broke into his mind and filled him with a sense of presence and wholeness. And, as much as he loved the Rusalka, he began to see in her an alien being, felt an inevitable gulf between his own hot-blooded humanity and her greenish tinge, her eyes like pale fish eggs and waterweed sprouting from her hair follicles. Her infinite sadness became his atmosphere, and finally he longed for home. So, with regret and sadness and pity, the seal hunter made the sign of the cross. Remembering instructions he heard from a storyteller many years ago, and in the blink of an eye, he was transported to his own shores. Story 2. The Polish Rusalka. Location, the Lubuski region. On the mirror-like dark waters of the river Obra, a young man glided along in his boat, seeking solitude in the sparsely populated Lubuski region. The flora and fauna here was riotous, and though beautiful, there seemed something unnaturally spirited in it all. The kingfishers flashed by in unusual numbers, and the tapping of the black woodpeckers resounded and echoed. Wild boars rustled and grunted in the tall grass that lined the river, and in that riparian meeting of two realms, woodland and water, amongst the fallen trees and the forest detritus, the young man saw the prolific squelching rot, and yet the copious amounts of mineral-rich life. The world was fertile, spawning, and breeding at every turn. And the water life itself was equally as animated. Everywhere frogs jumped off lily pads and turtles nestled in exposed bankside tree roots that gripped the soil like the legs of a wooden centipede. And on partially submerged logs there was slimy fungus and yellow foul-smelling goo. The fecundity of it all was beyond comprehension and the young man thought about the village he had just passed. The dancing and singing he espied through the trees as he glided along on his boat. The feast-laden table and the massive pile of wood clearly awaiting a bonfire once evening descended. He smiled at the imaginee, those green branches and flowers decorating the houses and gates. He had rarely seen Rusalka Week celebrated with such intensity Perhaps they too sensed 
the overpowering fecundity of the world and poured their joy into this celebration of spring and fertility. Yet, there was tension in it all too, for the people seemed to be peering into the trees, presumably looking for the Rusalki, whose beauty would entice the men of the village into those black waters. The young man scoffed at the idea, yet could not deny that the utter aliveness of this river seemed unnatural, seemed poised to burst at the seams. Then, something strange, something beyond words happened, and it seemed to the young man that a thin layer of shadow descended upon the world. There was an odd dulling of the sunlight, not as if a cloud had passed the sun. No, this was something else, as if twilight sought to disrupt the diurnal cycle, could not bear for there to be golden light in the world. There was then a minute movement in the water behind him, then the sensation of a great gliding movement behind him, the sound of water splashing as if something quite large had jumped out, then a great shaking of the branches above his head, something like a squirrel having leapt from limb to limb, but clearly of greater weight. And the young man nearly fell into the water when suddenly, before him, there was a naked leg, greenish-tinged, dangling on a large limb hanging over the water. He ducked to avoid it. The fleeting image of a head, laden with golden-green hair, lowering to watch him. Paddling with terror, he felt again, but did not actually see, a great gliding movement to another tree just a few feet from his boat. Again, that great shaking. This time, as the world darkened to shade, the young man saw a human figure squatting on the branch like a frog on a lily pad. The figure then scrambled up the tree onto a higher limb, and the young man was able to make out a silhouette of infinite elegance and strength. Thick golden-green hair like sunshine on algae hanging down the back. Then the singing. Not distant singing from a village, for he was now in a remote place. And the song was distinctly coming from the trees. There was something fertile and lush in the moaning in the occasional ululation. A thick, luscious depth that made the young man's mind heavy. Something in the cadence of those chanting female voices reminded him of the flowing rhythms of choral singing, yet with a meandering wildness, powerful, beautiful, and strangely threatening. Then, when the singing came in breathy staccato bursts, when there came a panting soprano quality to each warbling, sorrowful syllable. It was then that the young man could hear words and meaning. He had long ceased paddling, and his boat grounded slightly on a tiny, sandy bank. Above him, her long, naked body laying on a limb, her arms dangling, was the Rusalka. For so he knew her by the greenish tinge to her moonlight pale skin. And this time he was close enough to see that both golden hair and waterweed sprouted from the follicles. This creature was both woman and water being, 
a perfect merging of the two, a beauty both alien and verdant. She sang of a young man who had paddled down this river some years before and had stopped at the village for hospitality when the weather turned treacherous. She sang of his fine words in dark and secret places, his profession of love which faded into nothingness when he secretly left one night. And in that panting soprano chant in each warbling sorrowful syllable was the story of a girl whose belly became swollen, who tried to hide her condition and could not, whose father and mother refused to speak to her, the shame of a daughter who was pregnant out of wedlock. And with a mounting sense of familiarity and terror, the young man listened to the rest of her story. One night, when she could no longer endure the loneliness, when she could no longer endure her resentment, the creature kicking and squirming inside of her womb, she walked to the river, weighted herself down with rocks, and threw herself in. And her last living memory was of her mind growing vague into blackness and a sudden ceasing of movement in her womb. With that, the Rusalka leapt onto the sandy bank, and the young man was stupefied by the otherworldly beauty of her slender form. When she came closer, he knew he recognized the shape of that face, of those eyes. And though she was transformed into something that was both human and amphibious, though the green tinge of her skin and the strange tresses comprised of both golden hair and seaweed belied her true nature, despite all of this, the young man knew he had seen that vase very intimately in dark and secret places. Yes, he knew that face. And when she took him by the hand and lured him into the Black River, he did not resist, the water slowly engulfing him. But then he did panic, flailing and kicking when his lungs took in the alien water. When all about him became blacker as he descended, he tried to swim, but felt fingers tickling his sides. Tickling, tickling, a strange kind of torment that made him unable to swim, to move his hands, to kick. It was paralyzing. Then the Rusalka wrapped her legs around him and dragged him further down. Until all that was left was rippling concentric circles on the water surface and air bubbles bursting into nothingness. Story 3. The Mavka. Location, the Ukraine. Carpathian Mountain homeland of the Hutsul people, who are pastoral highlanders. In a pine-dense valley, beside a mountain lake with silver waters, a poor wanderer espied a small cabin, in which was a meager golden flicker of candlelight. And as he walked along the shores towards the home, the lake seemed almost meditative, 
a brooding aspect to that strange mix of colors, slate, and silvery mercury. He was not sure of the reception he would receive amongst the Hutzel people, for mountain folk are often somewhat isolated and distrusting of strangers. Nonetheless, he was tired and hungry, and he laid his hopes upon reports that the Hutzel people were also very hospitable. Indeed, today was his lucky day, for the moment the door of that humble cabin opened to him, he was met by welcomes, and he was so quickly ushered in and sat down on a sheepskin rug by the fire that he barely remembered to thank his gracious hosts. They were elderly and appeared to live alone, so perhaps they were eager to hear a tall tale or two, as travelers often doubled as storytellers. They handed him a soup bowl and a spoon, both beautifully carved with the visages of the spirits that dwelt in forest, rock, stream, and precipice. The elderly man introduced himself as the area's Mulfar, which the poor wanderer knew to be the word the Hutzel used for wizard or soothsayer. And the traveler smiled inwardly at his own luck, for the old Mulfar seemed kindly, and there was real wisdom in his face, which was canyoned by time and mountain wind. So, the poor wanderer poured out his heart to them, for it had been so very long since he had met with kindness. He had once had a home and a family, he told them, but now it was all gone. Disease and fire and treachery had taken it all, and his grief had crushed him thoroughly. Then he too fell ill, could not work, and since then had found his strength utterly sapped, had never recovered entirely from the sickness. After his story, the poor wanderer ended it by saying, I have come to seek my fortune, to find and pick the first blossom of the forest fern. I know this is a dangerous undertaking, but I have nothing left, and so therefore nothing to lose. The Mulfar looked long and hard at the poor wanderer and said, Nothing to lose except your life, for the first blossom of the forest fern is highly coveted by the Mavka, and they do not suffer human fools who try to take them. The young wanderer pulled a piece of cloth from his coat and looked at it for a moment. I know this, sir. I am no fool. I fear the Mavka. But what else do I have left? If I can pick that first blossom, I will become the most handsome-looking person in the world. But most of all, I can wish for my family to be returned to me, and it will be granted. The Mulfar stared hard at the poor wanderer and then sighed, as if conceding to his logic and seeing that there was no talking him out of it. Young man, said the Mulfar, if that is wormwood in that bundle you hold that you've just taken out of your jacket, then I will tell you where to find the fern blossom. Without a word, the poor wanderer opened the bundle, and immediately the elderly couple knew this was indeed a potent batch of wormwood, for the plant released such an overwhelming, pungent, camphor-like smell that it seemed to burn and purify everything in its vicinity. The Mulfar nodded and said, I have never smelled such potent wormwood. Remember to keep it close by, for the Mafka hate it, 
and they will entice you with their beauty. Indeed, they are the most beautiful women you will ever see. But they are deadly and angry, enraged by the fact that their human lives have been cut short. As you know, women whose lives have been taken tragically and prematurely are utterly destroyed by their raging grief. They envy the lifeblood of the living and seek to destroy it. If you see a cave with a river coming from the mouth, stay clear of it. The Mavka make their home there, and though they decorate the cold stone with rugs, they know they will never be at home on this earth. The poor wanderer bowed his head and said, I know this, sir. I will be as careful as I can. Now, will you tell me where the wormwood can be found? The Mulfar only nodded and whispered to him of a mountain path, of tall pines with bizarre curvature at the bottom of the trunks, and an ashen gray aspect to their bark. The Mulfar whispered that in the shadow of these pines there grew the ferns he desired, the ferns whose first blossom would grant his wish. The poor wanderer thanked the Mulfar and said he would set out the next morning. As the poor wanderer trekked up the mountain slope, he found hope in the golden beams of light bursting through the cloud, the rays of sunshine connecting the marbled sky of charcoal cloud and clear blue with the undulating green of the Carpathian Mountains. After some hours of wandering, the poor wanderer finally found what the old Mulfar had described the tall pines with the bizarre curvature at the bottom of the trunks and an ashen gray aspect to their bark. And in the shadow of these pines, he saw the ferns, the feathery leaves fanned out and added a powerful verdancy to the surroundings. The late afternoon sun sent golden portals through the canopy and a shaft of light spotlighted a particular fern plant. And somehow the poor wanderer knew that this was the one Here, he would hold his all-night vigil. He would dig his nails into his hands to keep awake if need be, for it was that first morning blossom that he sought. With that, he settled down onto the ground, placed his bundle of wormwood directly beside him, and waited for nightfall. What he did not see was a mountain cave, not so far from him, but hidden by the lush forest foliage. He did not see the movement, both human and fey, in the darkness, or the strange voices that seemed to underpin the cold trickling of the river coming from the mouth of the cave. Strange voices belonging to those who also sought the first morning fern blossom. When the dark night began to lighten with coming day, the poor wanderer gazed into the valley below at the lake, which was almost meditative, a brooding aspect to that strange mix of colors, slate and silvery mercury. Something mercurial, something full of agitation and quickened steps seemed to fret about him. Not an actual movement per se, but a feeling, a presence. And this sense of agitated longing suddenly peaked, for the fern beside him suddenly began to unfurl, for in the cold of the night, The leaves, as all ferns do, had coiled inward, creating a strange, leafy spiral. And now, with uncanny speed, the leaves began to unfurl, at first resembling the arms of a lethargic octopus. Then, 
the plant spread its feathery arms over the pine needle laden forest floor. Once unfurled, a blossom emerged with impossible speed, and with the flower came a numinous inner light. The poor wanderer reached over to pluck the flower, but stopped short. For now another hand, snow white and tinged with forest green, plucked the blossom before he could, and in the split second that he turned his head, he could only make out a lithe figure dart behind the tree. For a moment, all was quiet, and the poor wanderer lamented his loss of that first morning fern blossom. But then, a head slowly emerged from behind a large pine trunk, and the hair with all the hues of gold and green, of sunlight and soft moss, hung thick and luxurious to the ground. Such beauty the poor wanderer had never before seen, and he was overwhelmed. For now, the figure stepped out into his view, and her form was the very substance of the Carpathians, the curvaceous lines of grass-covered mountain foothills, and mossy hillocks, and the whiteness of snow. The poor wanderer was convinced that seeing the Mavka, seeing this maiden of water and mountain and cave and forest, was his sole reward. He was enchanted. The Mavka dominated his mind so utterly that all its contents were vanquished. He rose to follow, for though she did not speak, the Mavka beckoned him, and as she did, all who saw her. Yet beneath his desire, terror surged. For though the sun beamed down upon her form, no shadow was cast, and this deviance from the rules of nature made the poor wanderer's skin crawl, and the terror became paralyzing when she turned away from him. For the stories about the Mavka were true. The creatures had no back. Their insides its exposed raw and red like their souls, raw and red with anger. With a shudder, he felt disgusted by such a sinister mockery of the female form. For where there should be the smooth skin and elegant curvature of her back, there is nothing, only a hollow cavity. She was a creature bereft of the true inner workings of humanity, though she had the outward form. The poor wanderer's mind and will was compressed by terror and yet hobbled by the Mavka's beckoning. And though fear raged in his limbs, he could not run away. And as he walked into the black mouth of their cave lair, another kind of blackness blanketed his mind. Story 4. The Vodnik. Location, the Danube River, Slovakia. The fisherman cast his line into that gentle stretch of Danube River. 
which shone with an other than consistency, so rich in color and movement that perhaps there was a parallel world in those waters, lurid, soaked, saturated with life. There was something about the many textures of solid oak and wispy willow, of bright limes and brooding greens, all hunching over that squirming kingdom of catfish and carp and trout. And as twilight descended, the wooden pan mill took on a darker hue, playful but sinister, like a squat ferris wheel for the creatures, both natural and unnatural, that oozed and flowed and swam in the Danube's waters. Then, as a sliver of a moon appeared in the sky, the world seemed to shift quite suddenly. A quietness like death and sleep descended, and the river's waters became opaque. Not a blackness you would simply fall into infinitely, but a passage of sorts into worlds upon worlds, and everything seemed to exist in its own sphere. If the moon were to call out, the voice would be swallowed up by the dark sky. If a lost soul came called out in the dark waters, only a whispering pathetic bubble would pop on the surface. The fisherman felt a deep, deep loneliness in the world about him that he could not explain. When the fisherman began to feel a bit disoriented, he began to pack away his things very hastily, but then froze when he saw a rather large movement in the water. He knew that river with a soul closeness, knew its movements and habits, so this swiveling, swimming movement jarred him, for the mass creating the ripples was something he had not encountered before. The surface of the water then heaved up and parted, a slick, trickling sound breaking the lonely silence and inaugurating the emergence of something equally as slick and lonely. Bulbous and shaggy, this was clearly a head now, breaking the surface of the water. And as the fisherman quietly moved behind a tree to hide himself, he saw deep-set eyes with an opaline, fish-like quality. The skin on the face was peculiar, smooth, and human-like, but with a green cast. It gave the impression of raw chicken having been marinated in algae and liquefied seaweed. Then a beard emerged, dripping and tangled with muck. A humanoid hand suddenly shot out of the water, gripping a stone for leverage. The mass of the body now being lifted slowly from the water, and when the fisherman saw the webbed membrane between the fingers, he knew this was a vodnik. And as the vodnik heaved himself out of the water and onto the rock, crouching on the stone with a curious frog-like stance, it seemed as if all that loneliness the fisherman felt in the world about him heaved out of that river as well and washed over the world like a great ocean. It seemed to him that if the moon were to scream, its voice would be swallowed. And if a lost soul called out in the dark waters, not even a whispering pathetic bubble would pop on the surface. The fisherman watched the Vodnik leap onto the riverbank and lope along the river shore. 
and though the fisherman knew he should not meddle with such things, his curiosity, curiosity crippled his judgment, and he followed quietly. Catching sight of the tiny sliver of moon through the shore-hugging trees, the fisherman remembered the stories about the Vodnik, about their entire life cycle being completed in a single lunar phase, that they started this strange life with the new moon and grew older with each phase. The fisherman felt a terrible sadness at the idea, felt a sense of eternal monotony, and wondered if the Vodnik he followed, which now trudged through ankle-deep river sludge, remembered his human life at all, or if regret and loneliness had transformed his very mind and soul and body into a vague recollection of sensation. Did this being remember that fateful day when he decided to weigh himself down with rocks and cast himself into the Danube's deep waters, never to return? The fisherman then froze when he saw the Vodnik leap suddenly into the water and swim towards a sandy bank on the opposite side of the river. A sandbank milling with figures, looking like men at first glance, vagrants with patchy shirts and worn coats. Then, as the fisherman came closer, the scene came into sharper relief. The Vodnik had clearly joined a gathering of his kind, the Vodnici, and the whole affair seemed to squirm with an amphibious excitement. The Vodnici were all the same, those muck-tangled beards and algae-green skin. The fisherman then came as close as he could, without drawing attention to himself, and saw why they croaked and gestured with excitement, the whole scene resembling market day in the village. The whole sandy shore was covered in porcelain lid-covered cups. In their babbling excitement, the Vodnici would hold them up for inspection or gesture to them with flailing movements. Some of them had large, beautifully decorated cups, and these Vodnici would cross their arms over their pride-puffed chests and gaze imperiously around them. The fishermen even saw Vodnici cast envy-filled glances at those large cups and felt that the whole scene could even be funny. If it wasn't for the strange muffled sounds that seemed to come from the cups, when there was a lull in the Vodnici's own babbling excitement. If it wasn't for the fact that the cups would jerk and wiggle every so often, of their own accord and with no help from the wind. Indeed, the fishermen might have found the absurd, the absurdity of this gathering laughable if it wasn't for the infinite black loneliness that saturated those muffled sounds coming from inside the cups now sounding very much like tiny cries for help, gurgling pleadings. The fisherman was astonished at himself that it had taken so long for him to remember, to remember his mother's stories about the Vodnik, her admonishments to always respect the Danube's waters, to never be prideful or careless when near them. For those waters had drowned even the most capable swimmers, and it wasn't just death that one should fear, but the Vodnici and their porcelain cups. For they would store the souls of the drowned in those cups, 
souls in the form of mere bubbles, trapped in cold porcelain. As the fisherman watched the Vodnici gathering, he remembered, asking his mother why. Why did they want human souls? She did not know. But now he understood. For the sense of infinite loss overwhelmed him now. If the moon were to call out, the voice would be swallowed up by the dark sky. If a lost soul called out in the dark waters, only a whispering, pathetic bubble would pop on the surface. Perhaps the one emotion the Vonici emanated into the world about them was their regret, a mourning for the lives they had sacrificed to water and infinity. The fishermen thought that if indeed they were the spirits of men who had committed suicide, then perhaps to them the human soul had all the beauty of a glittering jewel or a rich, sumptuous feast. The fishermen no longer saw anything laughable about that gathering, saw a beautiful kind of truth in their absurdity, the truth of the outcast. These bizarre amphibious men were able to perceive something that, in these difficult days, the fishermen had forgotten, could not grasp. The human soul was indeed precious. And though he had many times contemplated offering his own soul to those waters, and ending his own lonely suffering. Well, now he knew better. And when the Vonitsi dispersed, ran away at the fisherman's quick approach, as the fisherman knocked over those cups and watched ephemeral bubbles burst out of them and cry out, released from their cooped-up madness when those soul cries simply dissipated into the night. The fisherman stood and looked at the sliver of moon with both fear and joy.